The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, winter is approaching. People are excited. Good to hear. I don't know about you, but um, for us, our garage has seasonal duties. In the winter, our garage is where we store our cars and our firewood and our shovels. But in the winter, sorry, in the summer, uh, our garage is where we store our bicycles and our big wheels and our scooters and our unfinished house projects, and we store whatever we don't want to put away. Well, yesterday we decided to make the transition, to try to turn our garage from the, winter, from the summer garage into the winter garage. And it didn't go very well. Very quickly, I started to get frustrated, as my family could tell you. Frustrated because no one was excited to do this chore. Frustrated because when the chores were done, they weren't done as efficiently or exactly how I would want them to be. And so after 30 minutes of frustration and then crying, the garage transformation fiasco was over and I did what any good dad would do and I took a nap. And after taking a nap, I woke up and thought about the fiasco and realized that the problem was pride. I wouldn't have said it before I studied the text this week, but the problem with the whole situation was my pride and my lack of humility. You see, what what I've discovered as I studied the text this week is that the heart of every bad attitude the heart of every harsh word, the heart of every sinful decision is pride. G.K. Chesterton said, famous preacher, he said, if I had only one sermon to preach, it would be a sermon against pride. Proverbs tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Charles Spurgeon says, pride may be set down as the sin of the human nature. St. Augustine says, pride is the mother of all sin. Time and again throughout scripture, we read that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. What we see is that pride is not just a problem we face. It is the problem that we face. Now, as you think about pride, as I've thought about pride, and as I've tried to Think of what is pride. It's very difficult to come up with a definition that is as encompassing as what the scriptures give. I looked at a couple different places. Webster Dictionary talks about pride, the negative form of pride, and defines it as a feeling that you are more important or better than other people. Dictionary.com says pride is a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority. I think last week, as Chad was skimming over this massive text in Philippians 2, 3, Paul started to tell us what pride is, that it is rivalry or vain conceit. 
And what rivalry means is rivalry is putting yourself ahead of others, trying to be others and be better than others, to have your lawn just a little bit greener than your neighbor's. In vain conceit is seeking glory for yourself, to promote yourself in the eyes of others and in the eyes of the world. And so with all of those definitions, trying to take them into consideration and create a simple definition that we can work with today, I simply want to define pride this way. Pride is self-exaltation. Pride is self-exaltation. Now, you may think, you know, I don't brag. I don't promote myself a whole lot. But pride actually takes many different forms. Pride may look like exalting your abilities, thinking, you know what? If I want it done right, I have to do it myself. Anyone ever think that? Pride might be exalting your abilities and saying, you know what? If I set my mind to it, I know I can do it. Nothing can stand in my way. Pride might look like exalting your own knowledge, saying, you know what? I know what's right. Everybody else is wrong. Everyone should get on board with me. Pride can also result in bitterness and unrighteous anger towards other. When we think, you know, why don't they get it? Why don't they understand how to use a turn signal? Why don't they understand things like I understand it? It also comes across in stubbornness and unteachability. Pride even manifests itself in unforgiveness. As we think, you know what? I would have never done what that person did. Yes, God can forgive me, but that person is so much worse than me. As St. Augustine said, pride is the mother of all sin. Pride is the mother of all sin because pride is the original sin. We read of Lucifer's thoughts and his first rebellion against God. He was an angel of God. And we read in Isaiah 14, he says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You see, Satan was exalting himself. He was preoccupied with himself. We see the same with Adam and Eve. They eat the forbidden fruit that they might gain knowledge, that they might gain pleasure. And they exalted their own needs and their own desires above God's command and God's love and God's presence and even God's warnings. And so pride is the mother of all sin because it is the original sin, but is also the origin of all of our sin. You see, when we rebel against God, when we dive into sin that we know is wrong, what we are saying is, God, I know your ways, but mine are better. I know what you think, but this is how it actually is today, God. It's prideful, and we say, God, I don't even need you to accomplish this. You know, one of the great symptoms of pride is prayerlessness. If you are a prayerless person, it is because you are a prideful person, and you do not know your need for God. And so pride is our great enemy. And the remedy for it is humility. If you would please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And we are actually going to be, um, the PowerPoint's kind of working today. Oh, it is. It's page 980 in the Red Bible, page 1452 in the Children's Bible. Do more slides in this work or just, oh, so the slides work. Okay, good. And so what we're going to be looking at is, An exaltation that comes through humiliation and not through self-promotion, not through pride. 
And it's funny because as we look today at pride and humility, one of the most interesting things about this topic is that if you think, if you don't think you are a prideful person, then you most certainly are. Uh, if you if you think about this topic of pride and you're like, my husband needs to hear this. <laughs> my child needs to hear this. Then you need to hear it. But it's also a funny topic because if you think you're humble, you're most certainly not either. And so what we see is that we are called to be people that seek humility before God, that we would recognize our pride and come to God's word humbly today to hear from him how we might live in a way that glorifies him through a joy-saturated, humble life. So let's read together. Philippians chapter 2, we'll go verses 5 through 11. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this passage today, we want to confess that we are so proud, we don't even know we're proud. That our pride is so deep that we think everyone else is the problem. And so God, pray that you would do a work in us today, that you would humble our hearts for our joy and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. While the letter to the Philippians is a letter of great joy, Paul also writes it because there is division occurring in the church. And just like in the church at Philippi, in every church throughout human history, division is caused by pride. And the remedy for it is humility. And as we read here on these flat pages of Scripture, humility might seem like an easy thing to practice. But we all know that humility is far harder to do. It's hard to be humble when the other person you're working with is not humble at all. It's hard to be humble when the other person attacks you both privately and publicly. It is hard to be humble when you're so certain that you're right. And yet here, we are called to grow in humility. And Paul does not give us five steps to become humble. Rather, he points us to the ultimate expression of humility. He points us to Christ's. It says, have this mind among yourselves, plural, you all, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This, this passage that we're looking at today, verse 6 through 11, has been called the hymn of Christ. It would have been a song that would have been familiar to the early church. Paul knew it, the folks at Philippi knew it, probably the regions around there. And it has two main themes. And those are going to be the two main topics of our sermon today. The first theme is the humiliation of Christ. And the second 
is the exaltation of Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at today, the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. First, the humiliation of Christ. Now, when we hear the term humiliation, we usually think of junior high when we wetted our pants or something like that, right? And we were humiliated or, or someone did something to us and we were humiliated, right? It's something that we did not choose to have happen to us. And we were embarrassed in front of all of these people. But when we talk about the humiliation of Christ, it was a voluntary humbling of himself. And for us to understand the humiliation of Christ, we first must understand the divinity of Christ. And that's what we see in this song. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus was in the form of God. This doesn't mean that Jesus was like God or that, God, that Jesus was similar to God. But it means Jesus was very God, that he had all the attributes, all the character of God. That Jesus, before his incarnation, when he became a man, Jesus was the eternal creator, sustainer, God of the entire universe. We know that this word form means that because if you look just a few verses later in verse 8, it says Jesus was found in human form. Again, it doesn't mean that Jesus was like a human or that he was similar to a human, but that Jesus was completely human. And so Paul reminds us that Jesus is completely God. And it's so important for us to understand this and understand the humility of Christ. Because to understand how low Jesus came from, we must know how high he descended from. And so we recognize that Jesus is God, that he always has been and always will be from all eternity. He was a part of the Trinity and he was due and received the worship and the praise and the adoration of heaven. This is who Jesus is. This is where Jesus was. And yet we read in verse six, in great humility, Jesus relinquishes those privileges. Look at verse six with me. It tells us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, that the English here, again, it kind of fails us. When we hear this word grasped, a lot of times what our mind goes to is something that we cannot grasp intellectually, right? So like you cannot grasp how big the universe is, right? If you start to think of how big the universe is, you just get a headache because you can't grasp it intellectually. But that's not what this hymn is singing about. Maybe a a better way to translate this word is held onto, okay? And so if you read it that way, it says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto, right? Tight-fisted on, uh, grasped. He didn't hold equality with God, a thing to be held onto. In other words, Jesus deserved exaltation in heaven for all eternity, but he did not hold on to that. Jesus, when he came to earth, deserved a royal welcome. He deserved the worship and obedience and praise of all people. He deserved the finest houses and the best food, but he did not hold on to it. He relinquished his glory He relinquished what he deserved and humbled himself. And so here we see in three ways how Jesus humbled himself. And I'm not sure, I guess it will be up here on the PowerPoint. But the first way we see that Jesus humbled himself is that Jesus, as the creator, became created. Look at verse 7 again with me. It says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born 
in the likeness of men. What a powerful phrase. Jesus emptied himself. Again, Jesus did not empty himself of his divinity, but Jesus emptied himself of his glory. He emptied himself of his divine rights and privileges as God of the universe. You know, it's interesting if you think back, if you know the story in Exodus 33, Moses asks God, he says, I want to see you. Please show me your glory. And God says to Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. This is how glorious God is. This is how glorious Jesus is. And yet he does not hold on to that glory. He comes as a person in a manger. He eats the food we eat. He wears the clothes we wear. He goes through the trials of life that we endure. Jesus humbled himself by becoming like you and like me. And that is what we celebrate in Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus, that God sunk himself into flesh. And he didn't walk around with a halo on his head or white flowing clothes, but he came humbly as a man. There's a story of a long ago Persian ruler who was a good king and loved his people. And he wanted to know how they lived. And so he would, he would go out and he would dress like one of the common people. And he'd go and he would start to work or he would dress up like a beggar. One time, he visited a very poor man in a cellar. And he ate the coarse food the man ate. And he spoke cheerful words to him. And then he went away and he came back. And as he came back, he revealed his identity. He said, I am your king. And the king expected the man to do what every other man did. Every other man would go to the king and he would ask him for all of these riches and all of these treasures. But instead, the poor man said, you left your place. You left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark, dreary place. You ate the coarse food I ate and you brought gladness to my heart. To others, you have given your rich gifts. To me, you have given yourself. Christ's incarnation is a great display of Christ's humility as he leaves the throne of heaven to become one of us. He doesn't just send a prophet. He doesn't just send his teacher. God sends himself. And God calls us to be like him, to have the mind of Christ, to be incarnational in our service of one another, to go into the hurt and broken places of this world with the love of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for you to be incarnational? It means simply going to a hospital room to someone who is sick and hurting. You may not have all the right words, but you get to be with them and love them and show them the love of Jesus. It may be going to a nursing home and being with elderly people who cannot leave there to love them and care for them, going into their world. It could be going into the world of someone who is, who is so messed up, who's so overburdened by their sin, or so overburdened by tragedy in their life and going to be with them. This is the incarnational ministry that Christ has done to us and that we are called to do and go to others in humility. And so we see Jesus humbled himself as the creator became the created. Secondly, we see Jesus humbled himself by the Lord became a slave. Verse 7 
again. It says Jesus emptied himself, his privileges and his glories, by taking the form of a servant. Now, the term servant here used is a term meaning bondservant, which is significant. So in the Old Testament, uh, sometimes people would be servants of other people. And many times it was to repay a debt. And so if you, owed, if you loaned me $100,000 and I was unable to repay it, what I'd do is I would come and I'd work for you to pay off my debt. Well, in that time, at, at every seven years, there was the year of Jubilee and all the servants were allowed to go free. But there were some that were bond servants. And what bond servants were, bond servants were men and women that said, I want to continue to serve my master. I know my master, I love my past, my master, and I want to continue to serve my master. And so what they would do, and it's recorded in Exodus 21, I won't read it to you, but what they would do is they, the, the, the servant and the master would go to the judge and the judge would make sure that this was voluntary. And then the, the master would take the servant to his door and he would, he would take a, what's it called? It's a, um, an all, thank you a large thick needle that they would use for leather and he would pierce the servant's ear into the door to mark him as a servant of his for life. And what Paul is telling us here is that Jesus, God, not only became flesh, but he also voluntarily became a humble servant to all of humanity. You know, I'm in, um, I've shared with you before I play, I like sports and I'm in this uh, rec league football uh, for the city. And this past week, uh, it was pretty exciting because this past week we played against a former Packer. And it's actually someone who uh, is fairly young. He was a running back and he had a head injury and he's still kind of in the prime of life. And I thought, wow, this is just, I mean, all our guys were kind of like giddy because this guy who, who played on Sundays at Lambeau Field in front of thousands of people in person, then millions of people across the country. This guy who played on Sundays was now playing in this rec league football game. And I thought, boy, what a, what a picture of, of the humiliation of Christ. But then I thought, you know, it, it doesn't even go far enough. See, the picture of the humiliation of Christ would be like taking Aaron Rodgers, who's in the prime of his career, who is vying for a national championship, and him giving up his career voluntarily to be our water boy, to clean off our cleats. This is what God has done in such a more magnificent magnitude than even that, that he gave up the praise to heaven to become a man and to serve you and me. And yet Christ's humiliation does not end there. It goes even lower. What we see is that Christ's mark of humiliation is not through the ear, but it's through his hands and his feet. We see Christ's humiliation in that Jesus, who is life, became death. John 14, 6, Jesus tells us, I am the life. John 1, 1 tells us that Jesus created all things, that he is the creator of the entire world. Colossians, which we studied not too long ago, told us about how Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all life and all of creation. And yet here we see the creator becomes uncreated. The one who is life goes to death. Verse 8 again. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. You can kind of see this 
staircase of humility of how it continues to go down and down and down how jesus is god and then he became a man and you go a step lower and then not only was he man he became a servant and then it goes a step lower and not only was he a servant but he actually was a servant to death it goes a step lower and now we reach the bottom level even death on a cross death would have been humble enough but the song says even death on a cross. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. The cross would have been such a horrible and painful and shameful and embarrassing death. I mean, the, the reason for the cross is because, again, it was torture. The person would die over a couple days as they would suffocate. They would, they would sink down and then they would raise themselves up to breathe on the nails driven through their, through their arms and through their feet. And then they would sink again. And finally, when they got too tired, they would die. And they would be exposed to the elements. But that's probably not even the worst part of the cross. The worst part of the cross is how humiliating it was. I mean, could you imagine this morning if we took you, stripped you naked, and hung you up here for everybody to see? as a billboard for the power of the Roman government. Can you imagine how humiliating that would be? And that wasn't even the most of it. Christ who hung there in humiliation was criticized by his creation. In Matthew 27, we read about this. We read that two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross, the most shameful form of death he could possibly endure. And the most amazing part of this whole thing is that Jesus did it voluntarily. You know, as I was listening to different preachers on this passage, one thing that really resonated with me is that a pastor pointed out a story when Jesus was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember Judas comes and he, he brings the Roman soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. And it, it never resonated with me like it does now. And it's recorded in John 18. And what we read is that, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus says, I am, and they fall to the ground. Do you see the power that was available to him? The cross was not simply 
because he was a victim. It was his purpose in coming to earth. He was a volunteer to go to the cross. Matthew 26 tells us, Jesus says, do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus humbly, voluntarily died at the cross, scorning its shame. And he did it so that he could take on our shame. So that he could take on our sin. That when we stand before the God of the universe, we will have no shame. But that we will know the righteousness of Christ applied to us. And enjoy the pleasure of God for all eternity. And so God comes in the form of the man. He humbles himself to the point of death. Even death on the cross. And so what does this mean for us? What call is this on us towards humility? Well, Matthew 16, 24 We read that Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whomever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The followers of Christ are called to have the mind of Christ, the humility of Christ, to pick up our cross and carry it every day. What does this look like practically? Well, Philippians 2 tells us, It's doing nothing out of rivalry or vain conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves, looking not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And so let me ask you this. Where do you need to practice the humility of Christ? Where do you need to pick up your cross? Where do you need to count others more significant than yourselves? Where do you need to look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others? Where can you relinquish your privileges, your status in order to serve others. We are called to have the mind of Christ, our humble Savior, the creator who was created, the Lord who became a servant, and the life who became death on our behalf. So that's the first part. The second part is the exaltation of Christ. The second and final picture we see here that the thing that they enjoy and that they worship is that Jesus will indeed be exalted. And we see a couple important things in this as well. First, we see the paradox of Christ's exaltation. Verse 9, it starts, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Now, if you've been around here, you may have heard this phrase a couple of times. But whenever we see a therefore in scripture, we need to ask, what is the therefore, therefore, right? And what we see, the reason why therefore is there is, is, is we are learning the purpose of the reason for Christ's exaltation. The reason for Christ's exaltation was his humiliation. This is a great paradox, one that our world does not grasp intellectually. We think if we want to go up, we must push ourselves up. If we want to be exalted, we must exalt ourselves. We might tell others of how successful we are in business or how well our family is doing. In order to exalt ourselves, we might talk about how other people respect us, how other people follow us, how other people admire us. We might even name drop and talk about people that we are friends with in order to exalt ourselves. In the world's economy, the way up is by going up. But in God's economy, the way of going up is by going down. This is so contrary to our thinking. And that's why it's an emphasis throughout Scripture. Five times in the gospel, Jesus says something similar to this. The last will be first and the first will be last. On four different occasions, 
Jesus says something along this. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the way of the world is that we would exalt ourselves, that we would, that we would promote ourselves. But what we learn is in God's kingdom, the way up is the way down, to humble ourselves. And this is where faith comes in. You see, in the passages throughout Scripture, and even here in Philippians chapter 2, what we see is that humiliation is active. And that exaltation is passive. And so what that means is that we are called to live in humility. But we receive exaltation. It's not something that we fight for or strive for. That is given to us by someone else. Even here in this passage we see in verse 6 through 9 in Christ's humiliation. We read, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, Jesus emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant. Verse 8. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. This was Jesus' active participation in humbling himself. But then we see his passive exaltation. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. What this means for us is that we do not need to seek exaltation. Exaltation does not come from us. It comes from God. And we are to pursue Humility to pursue humble service of God and of others. Again, this is a great paradox, but believing it will will lead us to a radically different life. Trusting that this life is but a vapor, it will allow us to live as living sacrifices for God, knowing that we will be exalted in heaven for all eternity. And so this is the way up in the kingdom of God. The way up is by going down. It's through Christ's active humiliation that Christ passively receives from the Father exaltation. This is the great paradox of Christianity. The second thing we see about Christ's exaltation is the pervasiveness of Christ's exaltation. As I read through these verses, I want you to notice one word, the word every. It's repeated time and time and time again. Verse 9 first, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You know, on this earth, Jesus' name is not very highly exalted. In fact, many times it's demeaned. Many times the phrase Jesus Christ is a cuss word. But in heaven, his name will be highly exalted. There will be no greater name. There will be no more beautiful name than the name of Jesus Christ. It goes on, verse 10. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth, and under the earth. Later in Revelations, we read of how the elders and the angels and all the living creatures of heaven cry out and praise Jesus, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And yet we read here that not only every tongue in heaven, but even every tongue on the earth and under the earth will give praise to him. Everyone without exception, will confess Jesus is Lord. That means Satan and all the demons will confess Jesus is Lord. That means Hitler and Stalin and all those other bad guys will confess Jesus is Lord. That means Buddha, Muhammad, will confess Jesus is Lord. You see the pervasiveness of his exaltation that all people, all creatures will exalt him as Lord. And so the question for us is not, will you 
acknowledge Jesus as Lord, the question is, when will you do it? You can either acknowledge Jesus now for your salvation and for your joy and for your delight, or you acknowledge Jesus as Lord after your death and your damnation and in your hell. And so it calls out to us, acknowledge Christ as Lord today because you will acknowledge him one day and do it now by his grace and for his glory. And so we see the paradox of Christ's exaltation that comes through humiliation, that that the pervasiveness of it as he is above every name. And finally, we see the purpose of Christ's exaltation. Verse 10 says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To what end? For the glory of God the Father. Now, we might expect that if every knee and every tongue is worshiping Jesus, that this would rob the Father of his glory. But what we see is it is quite the opposite. You know, if my child wins an award, or if they're given a compliment or an encouragement, it doesn't steal honor from me. It gives honor to me as his Father. And so as we worship Jesus, and we sing to Jesus, and we delight in Jesus, it gives glory to the Father. But what we see here is the ultimate expression of Christ's humiliation. That Jesus Christ did not come and serve in order that he might be exalted, but he came and he served and he laid his life down in humiliation that he might glorify the Father. Jesus humbled himself, not for himself, not that he might be exalted, but that he might glorify God. Wesley Altry is a 50-year-old man. And he was waiting for a local subway in Manhattan. It was around 12.45 p.m. And he was taking his two young daughters home before work. Nearby, there was a man who, uh, who had collapsed and he was convulsing. And so Mr. Autry and two other women rushed to help the man. The man got up and he stumbled over into the subway tracks. The headlights of the number one train were coming quickly. Mr. Autry said, I had to make a split second decision. And so he made one and he leapt on the tracks and he covered up the man. Mr. Autry, with his heart pounding, pressed down on him in the space of roughly one foot. And the train brakes screeched, but it could not stop. And five cars rolled overhead before the train came to a halt. And the cars passed inches from their heads, actually smudging his blue knit cap with its grease. Mr. Autry heard onlookers and he yelled up to them, we're okay. Tell my daughters that we are okay. Well, you see, after this great heroic effort of humility in which he laid down his life for another person, Mr. Autry was exalted. He didn't exalt himself, but he was exalted by the most powerful man in the world. It was the state of the union and the president acknowledged him and he received a standing ovation. And what's so interesting is that during that standing ovation, Wesley looked at the president from the balcony at the president and said, you demand, (laughs) you demand. See, if we give ourselves in humble service in this life, you may not be exalted in this life. Chances are the president will not recognize you in front of the whole country. 
But we have something greater. We will be exalted by God himself. And when we get there and receive the exaltation that God gives to us, the riches that he gives to us for our humiliation, we will simply turn around and say to him, you demand. You demand. Because all of the, all of the, the treasure that we receive in heaven, our delight will be to give it back to him. And so our desire to serve God through humility will be for his glory and not for ours. Let me end with this. Maybe you have um, seen uh, the TV show Undercover Boss. Have any of you seen that show before? Okay. Undercover Boss, it's a story of a boss of a major corporation. Maybe it's um, Subway or something of that sort. And what happens is the boss um, is in this is in his you know plush office and he has his great mansion that he lives in. And what he decides to do is he decides to leave all that and become a common worker. And so he disguises himself. He puts on the shirt uh, to work at Subway. He puts on facial hair and messes up his hair. And then he goes in to serve and he goes in at the lowest possible spot. So he's washing dishes. He's mopping the floor. He's making sandwiches. And typically the boss is quite awful at this. But at the end of the show, what happens is that the boss once again reclaims his position as CEO and he reveals himself to his workers and they come in and they're surprised. And, and then he uses his exaltation to serve them. He uses his position and his status to say, I'm going to set up a charity in your name. I'm going to give you a scholarship. I'm going to raise your wage. I'm going to raise you up to be regional manager or whatever it might be. And people resonate with this because this is the picture of the humility of Christ who left his throne above, came to the earth as a common man, taking on our traits, our characteristics, our culture, but is once again exalted that he might love us and serve us and intercede for us. If, if, if being proud means exalting ourselves, then humility is exalting Christ in all we do. And so as we face dirty garages, or crabby spouses, or rebellious kids, we can ask this question, not how do I exalt myself and exert my power in my plan, but God, how do I exalt you in this place at this time? The way up is the way down. Have this mind among you that is yours in Christ. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we praise you that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, that we might know the riches of your grace, God. Lord, we pray that as we turn to your supper, that we remind us of the humility that we are called to have in him, God. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the pride in our heart and our need for humility, God. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much that you are the ultimate expression of humility towards sinners like us. May we be humble servants to you and to sinners around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.